So welcome to Thursday Night Live. It's, uh, we've never had a death panel before. And when I was contacted about having a deaf panel for Thursday Night Live, I was very enthusiastic, very excited because I think it's really excellent to have a mainstream organisation acknowledge the deaf experience and our experiences as deaf women and improve their engagement with the deaf community. And so in discussions with the panellists about tonight in our preparations, I actually sent a few questions along to them. And their feedback was that there wasn't enough depth or provocation to the questions I had drafted. And they really wanted more opportunity to unpack, you know, community and language and those concepts and also historic history and, and their own experiences. So hopefully we'll have some interesting conversations tonight. I would like to introduce the panelists. First is Darlene Thornton. Who herself is an Auslan linguist and a researcher, in particular research, researcher of deaf history. And I have some questions I want to start with. Uh, with you firstly, Darlene. So I mentioned deaf elders or pioneers who tirelessly advocated for the betterment of our access needs in our community and specifically intergenerational trauma. That seems to be a theme within the deaf community. And so I wanted to ask you, Darlene, what's your experience of intergenerational trauma? And does that, is that linked to any key barriers or, uh, for example, the Milan Conference for Educators of the Deaf back in 1880? Would you consider that to be a key milestone in causing such intergenerational trauma? Because at that conference, all the educators decided that uh, sign language wouldn't be used in, in schools and the education of deaf people. So I wonder what the consequences of that major decision all those years ago has on the deaf community today, where deaf people were discouraged or deaf students were discouraged or disallowed to sign. So Darlene, do you think that decision still has an impact on the community today? Or any other significant events that might still impact the community today? Well, that's a very good question to start with. Firstly, I have a little bit of a, a polish up on that. So what if with the Milan conference, say when it started and everything rolled out and changed, it wasn't actually from that event, it was prior to that event. So really what they were speaking about was things that were happening for about 30 odd years. Uh, they were talking about it and signing and saying, yeah, that's all good. But still they weren't satisfied because they knew that signing meant that it would encourage more deaf, deaf people to become up and have more understanding. That way it would reduce the opportunities for them to be included with work and what have you. But anyway, with Milan, the impact what it had to the deaf community or the deaf community within Australia wasn't huge. It actually started to become more of an impact, say, around the 1930s. So from that time on. Really in Australia, we became very oral uh, around the 1960s. And so that caused the ripple effect. So that meant that Australia, it happened a bit late, which was good, but we still haven't overcome that ripple effect. So when we talk about the history and the trauma around that, I think it's interesting, where from my experience, it will be different from the other panellists' experience. For me, when I grew up, I grew up with deaf grandparents and deaf parents and aunties and uncles and cousins, which meant that when I went to a deaf event or a social gathering or a party or even to church, there is a deaf, as a child who was five or six, I would wander through those groups and I would look at people signing and watching their conversations, 
So I learned a lot from that, from the older generations that were there and their experience and how they would deal with, say, problems that arose. You know, if there was a complaint, what would they do? Who would they go to? How could they improve the situation? So for, for me, I had that extra learning. And then I could see when things couldn't be solved. I took all that information in from my grandparents to my parents. So that means, yes, it has come through the family. It's generational. But also from those generations, from the people that are all connected to them within that generational. And then to the next generation. And now to my generation, so to me. So when I look back, I think, ah, right. Everything is still happening in a loop. It just continues. Why? I think it's a lot worse now because there's no regular gatherings. There is no space where people can get together, together and talk and communicate, you know. Not like Facebook, what did I do on the weekend or whatever. It's not the same. You can't really learn, have learned experiences through those mediums. So from my generation and the generations that will come after me, I think their experience will be more difficult because there's nowhere for them to access information from the previous generations. So the responsibility is on myself and from other deaf people, from generational deaf families to pass on what our experiences were and what our knowledge is, the things that we take for granted. So really it's a very complex issue there's no real research around that particular um, subject, but it is something that I would like to look into one day to look at the impacts. What is that trauma that has affected the generations? And what is it for deaf of deaf families? There are so many. Sorry, can I have the spotlight on Sigrid, please? There are just so many layers that can be unpacked and explored there, Darlene, in terms of what makes a deaf experience today or what, attribute, or what contributes to it. So in terms of your background, you did mention you are from a multi-generational deaf family. So you have benefited from their wisdom and their stories and you have become a wise deaf woman because of it. <laughs> Now, the second thing I wanted to ask you, this is for Asphyxia and Riona. Now, you grew up in a family that was not deaf, so where everybody could hear. So how did you join the deaf community? And was it an easy navigation? Start with Asphyxia. Or actually, let's start with Riona. Whoops. Okay, I was born into a hearing family. Um, I only started to learn a few years ago. Really quite recent. So my life growing up with my family was good. I had a small family, a hearing family, and I learned to speak orally. But I missed out on, you know, the underlining stuff like the tone perhaps when someone was speaking, what was the tone that was attached or what was the emotion that was attached? Was there any double meaning to those conversations? I would miss that. Also at school, I didn't have an interpreter. I went to a mainstream school. There was no interpreters there. So I would sit and watch the teacher speaking. I really wouldn't have any idea of what they were saying. So I think, oh, well, bother them. I'm just gonna open my book and read it. So that's what I did through most of my school life. So that then caused me to miss out on things. But books had information. What was I missing out on? Was the sensitive language, the oral language, the English language. I missed out on the, you know, the points or the finer points of the context perhaps, or the meanings of particular words and how they related to other words within the language. So there was no community language. So I was a deaf person in a hearing world but I did understand, I was lucky with my mother. She actually taught me English with cued speech, which is what I grew up with, with the cued speech. And that, was, that gave me a good understanding of English. 
But I think that when I look back, I really did miss out a lot. I missed out on the social aspect, you know, the deaf community, the deaf friends, the hearing friends had lots of friends and I'd sit there and look at everyone talking and I'd be like, okay, this is boring. Whoa. It's like, gee, read a book. So I would read a book. I did that for many years. I got a lot of information from books. So when people say, oh, you're deaf, oh, you poor thing, I kind of go, hmm, I'll leave that to asphyxia to explain that. But on my path, a lot of deaf and hearing people, of course, there's diversity. I decided to join the deaf community when I was young at 18 when I finished school. I was very shy. I had no language, no Auslan language at all. I was very, very strong in my oral. The deaf community at the time was based in Stanmore and I remember it was very vibrant and I was shocked. There was all these people signing, just talking and talking. It's like, wow. But when I tried to join in, like say, hi, my name is, did they accept me? Mm, no. No, I was too oral. I was hard of hearing. I said, no, 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 I'm actually profoundly deaf. No, 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 they didn't accept me. I did try for one or two years to kind of get into the community, but I never felt included. I'd learned sign, but I don't know, perhaps people didn't have enough patience for me. I mean, it's, you know, not everyone's the same. Everyone's diverse. But at that time, it was unfortunate for me because I had met with the wrong group of people. Don't get me wrong. Some people are lovely and I am great friends with them now. But just at the time, you know, when you're young, it's a bit, mm. so they didn't accept me. So I thought, okay, this is not for me. So I didn't come back into the, I went back to the hearing world. I'd lost any sound that I had or hearing. I have a cochlear implant. And I was like, well, where do I fit in? Do I fit in the deaf community or the hearing community? Because I didn't fit into either fully. So I was like, well, what do I do? Then eventually I met an absolutely beautiful person. I haven't, actually, I didn't ask that person for permission to use their name here. Just, just a lovely person. That person who's watching me will know who they are. Hello. So I met that person and that led to meeting other people. And then I realised, oh, these are a different group of people. These are the people that had the right attitude. They're very warm and welcoming. They were very patient with my signing skills. Very, very patient. Big kisses to all of them because they were so supportive. And about three and a half years ago, I was in Sydney at the festival or at a festival. And I met a deaf person there and they said to me, oh, have you got the, uh, there's a job there at Accessible Arts. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll find out about it. Got there, got the job. And then I had learned so much more signing. I was like, oh my God, I just took it in and took it in. And then Darlene was talking and then she had her students and they were feeding me stuff. And I was like, yep, yep, I understand. Then we, you know, discuss it. So now I feel that I can move in between the two worlds, the hearing and the deaf world. Where do I belong? I'm starting to feel that I do actually belong to the deaf community now. So big thanks to Sigrid and Darlene for including me because now I feel like I have a community. It's my community. So if you have deaf children, please include them in both communities. Please take the time to take them into both communities. Don't be, you know, not bothered, be bothered. It can be a lot of work. But for deaf people, it's like a shot of adrenaline. It's like, yes, getting in, talking in that language, chatting for hours. It's a beautiful, rich language. I think I've spoken enough, but thank you, Sigurd. I hope that answers your question. It did, and you and Riona have, you, Riona and Darlene have such different experiences. So the same question to you, Asphyxia. What was your introduction to the deaf community like? Oh, sorry, I'm... Okay, I'm going to promote Future Girl. I just finished reading your new book yesterday, Asphyxia, and it was brilliant. There's a lot of diverse thing. You know, there are a lot of diverse experiences in the deaf community. 
we're not just one homogenous community uh, and this is the perceptive perceptions and the experiences of so many deaf people in the one character where you know she's a parent there's children of deaf adults it's all so many perspectives in the one character and or in the one book rather and i think it's really worthwhile discussing microaggressions things that happen repeatedly to deaf people even though they may appear subtle and i really identified with that theme in the book so asphyxia i might ask you to expand on that please absolutely so when i talk about microaggressions in the book i'm really talking about those little things that happen every day and each moment itself isn't necessarily a huge issue, but when they escalate or when you add them together, it becomes huge. And I'll give you examples of what I'm referring to. So a person I may have never met before, I bump into in the, sh in the store and they realise I'm deaf. And then there's that sympathy. Have you ever considered having a cochlear implant, they ask me. So those sorts of things which aren't necessarily appropriate because they're very, they're very personal and intrusive medical procedure. And I've never heard of someone just talking to a stranger about a very personal intrusive surgery. So I don't know why I would be asked. And then there are other times when people say, oh, you speak very well, asphyxia for a deaf person, and that's not your place to assess or judge my speech. And it's something that's quite difficult to respond to. And I actually know more about my speech ability than anyone else does. So it's not really a place for them to comment. And then there are other times that people have commented that um, they never would have suspected I was deaf. Much like, oh, sorry, Riona, much like you, I grew up using speech, the oral method, and I spoke quite well because I only became deaf when I was three. So I had speech and that language development already. So when I spoke, I'm sure I didn't sound like other deaf people and I, it was quite patronising that, you know, that I, I was told that I would pass as a person that could hear. And that in itself is a, a microaggression. Because over time, those comments built up and I started to feel as though there was something wrong with me being deaf. To, to be commented, to have that comment that I could pass as being a person that could hear made me feel as though being a deaf person was a problem. And so over time, those little microaggressions actually become quite big. And my voice has become my voice has changed over time and that doesn't seem to be a problem for me so I'm not sure why it has to be a problem for any, anybody else and just having that brought up becomes awkward and embarrassing and for people to comment on my speech or my voice or my medical situation is really none of their concern and and the comments those microaggressions um, have impacted me and so I've had to build walls up but that in itself is very exhausting. And I know that having to rely on lip reading people can be very exhausting and that's from my own lived experience. So I have to try and resist when people try and force it on me or it's, it's really a tiresome experience. So that's what I mean by the microaggressions. And I think most people in the mainstream community don't really understand that this is a problem for us. I'm sure that they mean well and think that they're being encouraging or complimentary. And I just feel it requires a bit more awareness or education of how it does impact deaf people. And that's why I raised the topic in my book, Future Girl. And like Sigrid said, I'm trying to capture lots of deaf people's experience in the one book. So people who read it will understand how to become uh, an ally to us, to the deaf community, after they've learned a bit more about our experience and seen things through our eyes and our hands. 
and hopefully the next time a person that can hear encounters a deaf person, they won't just focus on the deafness and but include us as humans, as people. And so I hope that answers your question, Sigrid. It does. Thank you. Thank you for that, for sharing that and the explaining microaggressions. Thank you. And I feel so proud to have these three wise deaf women sharing their experiences with us tonight. There is another question I would like to ask after observing some of your comments and knowing a bit about your background. When it comes to community, do you think there's more to language than community? And when I say language, I mean Auslan. So who wants to tackle that first? Darlene. Yeah, like I said before, I'm automatically deaf. So everything about being deaf, a deaf person in the wider community, I automatically took it all in. So when I question why did this happen to me or why do I think like that or why is that my reaction, it's automatic. So sometimes if someone sends, says something to me and I say to my parents, why do they speak like that? And they say, oh, maybe they don't know better. But now I have a chance to really research and look into these situations to what makes a deaf person or what makes a signing deaf person because there are differences there. When I look at these lives that are lived, I look at the big things that separate them is generally the use of language. Because Auslan, say obviously for another country, they would have their own signing, like the, what is the heart of the deaf community, what brings us together, it's the core of the deaf community. But the other thing is actually knowing your own identity, knowing what your capabilities are, what is your history, knowing your strengths, knowing your resilience and what your value is, what your beliefs are as a deaf person or as a, as a deaf signing person. So other people go, yeah, look, I feel like a deaf person, but I don't need to sign. I don't need to be involved with other deaf people. I'm happy where I am. So that's where it becomes the divide. That's where they're in the middle because they feel safe, they feel comfortable, they're in that zone. Sometimes some deaf people don't want to expose themselves. They don't want to research who I am, looking inside. Should I be going to that group? So everything that I have taken in from all of the hearing people, say the um, well-meaning, uh, unaware people, when they talk about what a deaf person should be, like Asphyxia said, it's like, oh, wow, you speak great. And oh, like Rona said, yeah, oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I get that, I get that. Oh, you speak well. I'm like, oh, okay. I see you're not deaf. And I'm like, oh, gosh, show me what a picture it is of a deaf person. What does a deaf person look like? I haven't found one yet. So it's what they perceive. So what is a deaf person that hasn't come into the deaf community? It means that they need to unpack themselves, get rid of all those labels and tags, work out what they are and then decide whether they want to go in the deaf community. But many people don't want to do that because it is scary. It can be a scary experience. It can be very emotional. So it's a huge area that, yes, language connects community. But at the moment, the deaf community, it's strong, it's resilient and ready to support. Unfortunately, not. So that's where one of the biggest issues are that I can see. Because people who have deaf children don't see deaf adults and how they work in a community. They say, well, I noticed one thing that was written in America about some parents who had a baby who was born, who was to become their first, uh, the 10,000th person to be born as a deaf person. I thought, wow. How many hearing people would really meet a deaf person in their lifetime? No one can really meet 10,000 deaf people. So the maths was huge. And this is why this is happening. But it's kind of like, well, what do you do? 
where are the chances to build it, you know, to keep the community together? Say, like, to open those doors, per se, to have people come on in, you know, and not, it's not like you're stealing them. We want to encourage them to, to become involved and included. But what that thing is, who knows? And it's, you're right, it's very experienced that a person who can hear will encounter a deaf person and understand what the deaf experience is like. So for new parents who have a child that is born deaf, that itself is a big barrier. I mean, until then, it's, it's, it's a very, it, it's a barrier for those parents in meeting other parents who are in the same situation. Usually, you know, if your child is born in a hospital, the first person that you will encounter is an audiologist. Or have a, so you have a hearing test, which all babies have. And the result, if they are deaf, is a fail. And that is the per parent's first experience, unless they've already met deaf people, of yeah. deafness, which is so negative. Yes, it's so negative. And so straight out, straight out it's a negative association. And that... And until they meet another deaf person, they'll only encounter that medical model of deafness or experience that medical model of deafness, whether it's the NDIS or an OT. And if that can continue until they actually meet a deaf person or have a deaf role model in schooling, for example. So you make some good points. You know, whether they're born deaf or were recently acquired a hearing loss and many people want to they need to explore their personal identity already but um if you're deaf i wonder how hearing people can improve the way they engage with deaf people asphyxia you might like to talk to that i think like you said, the first point of contact for many deaf, for many parents who have deaf children is when they are by a medical professional who diagnoses their child as failing a test. And I think it would be really valuable if we could educate those people, those medical professionals who are diagnosing us, uh, to help them understand that there's not just the medical model, but also the social model of deafness and explain exactly what that means. And to explain it to the audience tonight, the medical, the medical model is more about how you might fix a child, whether it's through uh, speech therapy or hearing aids or a cochlear implant, whereas the social model takes more the approach of how we can fit, how we can make our world more accessible for the deaf person to participate without forcing them to have to change anything and i think that those people that are responsible for diagnosing deaf people mostly have an understanding of the two models and hopefully if they had more of a network within the social model so that being the deaf community then there might be more opportunity for parents to understand my child hasn't failed in fact there are many successful deaf people who are achieving wonderful things and that might help with the grief they're experiencing if they're just told that their child has failed something. So I think that whole conversation, that diagnosis needs to change. I agree with you, Asphyxia. A big part of a deaf person's life, particularly those who have parents that can hear, which is about 90 to 95% of deaf children. A big part of their identity is formed with that diagnosis. And it really does have an impact on their life journey. And it's really important that we provide support to these families who, especially those who haven't encountered deaf people before, on the different opportunities that are available for their deaf children.
I can understand they want the best for their child, but with language deprivation and lack of access to a thriving community, the barriers will just build and build and build. So in terms of deaf education, I'm wondering if there's something you think that could change to improve deaf education. Darlene. Look, um, I have said it a few times, I guess I'm going back to the point of it's the government. The government needs to recognise Auslan as one of the top needs of language for Australia. Because this is where the awareness is. So there are deaf people and there is Auslan. So it needs to go out into the community. It's like New Zealand. New Zealand actually have three languages that are officially recognised in New Zealand. So one is English, one is Maori, and one is New Zealand Sign Language. So those through are an official language of New Zealand and it's been successful. Many hearing people have become quite aware and they get excited and would like to learn New Zealand Sign Language so that children have different avenues of experience while they're growing up. So they're signing. But in Australia, there's no official language. It's still a community language, kind of tokenistic, like Auslan's one of them. But we need Auslan. We need it for our everyday information and communication. This is a need. But while it stays in the community level, it will never achieve the status that it should. The type of change that we need is to look for, the what we need is a change for deaf children of the future, for their me mental health, and to remove the barriers that are continually there. You know, it's hard to know where it's going to go, but my view is that the status of the language needs to change, the recognition. It's the same as disability and as a called as well, not just a disability. It needs to be recognised as a called as well. Did Rona want to say something as well? Let me just check. Can you put the spotlight on me, please? Look, Darlene, um, it's the same. It's a community language and it belongs to, you know, the primary family. It belongs with friends and it, there's a, you know, a sense of belonging in the workplace. But it's difficult to belong to something if there's no knowledge or skills. I think to help change attitude, yes, it needs to come from the government down. And I also believe that the deaf community they need to change your attitudes as well. Like to say, are you deaf enough? Because that's a question I, I used to be asked. Are you deaf enough? They'd look at me and say, they wouldn't like directly say, oh, are you deaf enough? It was kind of like I felt like they were observing me, looking me up and down and assessing me. You know, do I have enough deaf heart or culture or personality? It was difficult. So this brings up an actually good point that when we talk about unpacking yourself and your deaf identity, a lot of deaf people in hearing families, you know, whatever the percentages are, 80, 90, how do you connect to the other deaf people? There's very few pockets of stronger deaf community people where there's so many hearing. When you meet a deaf person, there's so few. How do we change that? Perhaps it's with the language. Maybe it's having a deaf centre, a deaf place, a hub or a space that is specific for the deaf, like in the old days, like Stanmore. You know, how can we help the children and how do we help parents of deaf children? How do we expose them to that wonderful deaf world and that they have the access to both worlds, the hearing world and the deaf world? My identity Somebody asked me, Which, what's your identity? Where do you sit? And I'm like, well, I'm just Riona. Yeah, sure, I'm deaf. Unfortunately, I don't have any culture. I don't identify with any culture. I am interested with the signing and I'm really keen on the um, community. But at the same time, I don't feel like I can fully immerse into the deaf community because it's another, oh, I don't know. It's like, it's hard to explain. It's like another level. Um, you know, somehow to, how do I make that a part of myself? 
that I can be involved 100% in the deaf community. For me, it's not there yet, but you know what? I'm still learning. So if someone asks me, what's my, my identity? I simply say, I'm Riona. So, you know, you talk about the capital D or the small d as in relation to the community. Thank you. You raise really great points, Riona. And thank you, Asphyxia and Darlene, all three of you have raised really valid points in terms of how complex identity is and how it impacts connection to community and language, especially when everybody has such varying lived experiences. So I really want to keep going with this conversation until we've unpacked everything and put the world to rights. But I think what we might do is open it to questions from the audience. So if you do have a question, please type it in the chat or rather the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And we've got one question received already that we'll start with. And the question is from Sue Jo Wright. I'll just bring it up in front of me. So Sue Jo, it's in relation to Asphyxia's comments about people commenting on how well she spoke, but this can happen in the reverse. Deaf people will actually say to deaf people, um, in, sometimes actually reject them because their signing's not good enough. How do you manage that? And I think Rion has already spoken to it, but do, does Darlene or Asphyxia want to add anything? Darlene? Ah, uh, yes. You know, that's always a question that I get asked as well. It's like, where do we and how do we really measure the signing skills and the proficiency? I mean, do we need to do that? I think if we look at the deaf community and their point of view, like from my parents' time, which was, yeah, I'd say my parents' time around the 1960s, thereabouts, previous to that and around that time, deaf children were in deaf schools, which meant their signing skills were brilliant because it was their first language and that's what, how they learnt and processed and did everything through school. So their signing was never assessed. It was never looked at because there was nothing noticeable. But then after, like myself, I was in mainstream as well, full mainstream schools. Most deaf children, well, okay, I had the opposite experience. So my signing was proficient, but in school, the teacher called my signing sloppy. Like I was a sloppy signer. And they wanted me to do the signed English, which meant I had to put my home signs aside and then adjust myself to the signed English to satisfy the teacher because the other deaf kids were watching the teacher and the teacher was saying that my signing was sloppy and not good. So the other kids looked at me and went, ah, you're really sloppy. Ah, oh, it's better to speak. So that's where the deaf community, it became kind of, you know, what's better, what's good, what's right. So that language identity for a deaf person is always hard because there's no base, there's no measure. It doesn't matter whether you're a brilliant signer or otherwise, it's the attitude that's connected to each other. Like how do we, how do we connect to each other? Where's the support? That's the important part. But the moment, there's none of that. So I think this issue is going to continue. And then there was another comment from Riona saying that we need better education from the government. That's another one that I've spoken to other people as well. I think it would be better to have smaller deaf schools in main areas. So one hub and then having like a, a deaf club or, you know, access for adults to have, or for the kids to have access to, you know, adult language models. That would be the dream. But I think it continues for all of us. I think it will always be a challenge. How do we look at, you know, changing that and bonding better within our own community? 
Thanks for your comments, Darlene. There is another question, or actually two more that have come through the chat. So one is from Adele. Let me just read it. And so Darlene, it's related to something Darlene touched on earlier. Adele wants to know if there is any documented history of Auslan or the deaf community because she's really keen to learn more about it. Perhaps, or perhaps Darlene one day could write something. What do you say to that, Darlene? Oh, I have a long list. <laughs> I need to know when to pick and which one. Yes, I would love to. Uh, it's all depending on time and finances and supports. There are history things around and about. You just need to do the research and, you know, choose what it is you want to learn about. Mm. I just want to add a comment to that. It's really important to understand that deaf history isn't always written. Uh, so, you know, remembering it's a disembodied language, you know, it's, it's the way we communicate is this, it's, it's passed on, our language is passed on through generations, through storytelling, like many other languages around the world are. And only recently we've um, been able to find a lot of archives of older deaf people and digitise those from film or whatever format they're in uh, to be able to share with younger generations. And if I ever watch videos of older generations of deaf pioneers, I just feel the goosebumps immediately to see that's where my heritage is. I guess our ancestors of the deaf community. And although we're not related by blood, we are linked in other ways. Um, and in this instance, through language, and there's such a risk of losing that rich history. And as our pioneers become older, it's really important that we maintain that language and preserve our history. So I would like to see more stories captured through video. Now there is another question. And this one is from Sally. Hello everybody. Thank you for such a rich conversation tonight. I'm a hearing mother of an amazing deaf child. We are a bilingual family. And we have attempted to become involved in the deaf community as much as possible. However, to be honest with you, we're not finding it an easy experience. Often you need to be invited to a deaf party or a deaf person's home or social event, an intimate social event. It's not enough to just go to the annual deaf festival that's held once a year. I need to build authentic connections and friendships. And I find that very difficult when I'm only new to a language. It's if I'm not, if I'm still learning, it's hard to develop friendships. And I think that's a big barrier for hearing parents. So do you have any thoughts or advice for our family? I do. To be honest, I don't have fantastic advice for you, but I would say hang in there and please don't give up. Like Riona mentioned earlier, she said that when she first encountered deaf people and tried to join the community, she found it very difficult. And I have to say it was much the same experience for me. I was judged, I looked hearing apparently, and I received similar comments that Riona did. And later after a while, and meeting the right people, I found my crew, I found my crowd. 
that I fit in with and fit in with me. And it can be difficult because within the deaf community, there are less people to choose from. There are less people to meet. So I just encourage you to keep looking and trying and going to events. And I'm sure over time you'll come to know people, you'll be drawn to people. And those people who are the right people for you will notice how serious you are about wanting to be a part of this community. And as your child grows and goes to school, they will mix with deaf people and might develop, might have a mentor. And I'm sure over time you will naturally form your own community within the deaf community, particularly if your child does go to a deaf school or somewhere where there's a deaf facility or is involved somehow in the deaf community and your identity, they will form their identity and bring you with them. So that's all I can really impart with you. And I, um, sadly, there's no easier or more straightforward answer. Darlene? Look, I agree with it, what Asphyxia just said. It's the same. I think another thing as well is that deaf people have lost their home. So it becomes a little bit, they become defensive with their time and protective. It's like, what time do I have for myself? Because we're constantly giving to the hearing community because we live in that, you've got to remember, we live in that hearing community 99.9% .9 of the time and it does wear us out. So if a hearing person sees that and realises that, then we can build a better, you know, friendship and alliance and provide more and do programs and work with them not them working on top of us, you know, providing opportunities equally. If they feel like, oh, I would like this to happen, then, you know, do an open invitation. Don't just invite, you know, a few people. Do a generalised open invitation because there might be plenty of other deaf people that have time, but, you know, they're saying, oh, well, I'd like to work with you, but they don't know. So it would be good to find a good platform to start with and then have those discussions because deaf people need that as well. They need to know that they have stuff to give. They do. They do, Darlene. So Riona and I have quite parallel experiences in working with people who can hear and I want to know how we can I guess look I want to talk about the concept ally so for example arts world at the moment they are starting to engage more with the deaf community and it's a bridge between the hearing and the deaf community. And that's a way we can reach out to young deaf or hard of hearing people. So hard of hearing people who have not yet found the deaf community. And my advice really is if hearing organisations do have programs for youth, for example, have a think about how you can make it more inclusive so that deaf or hard of hearing kids might join. And then we're closing that gap or removing those barriers between the two communities and allowing people to make authentic connections in a safe space. For example, Lismore Regional Gallery, uh, something they implemented some time ago was providing interpreters for their children's programs. And from that, connections were built between hearing and deaf communities. And it doesn't matter if a deaf person attends or not, the gallery will provide interpreters regardless. And it raises awareness. And people ask them, ask questions. Awareness grows, word spreads. And then the first time they might meet a deaf person, it's not new to them. They've learned a bit about it through these interpreters or just the presence of an interpreter at the gallery. So it's about creating safe spaces so that people can create connections. Riona, you wanted to add something? Yes, just quickly, I'll wait for the spotlight to change. That is very important to provide the deaf space. When you say developing the deaf hub, say, and deaf space, 
would say, you know, it's like for them. So when you invite hearing people into that space, yes, that is good. But at the same time, we appreciate it if you could sign. It gives us like oh, a bit of, you know, instead of having to work out, you know, you speaking all the time, if you can actually come into the deaf space with signing skills, that helps us a lot. So like Sigrid or Darlene had said they work with a lot of creative people in programs. And I constantly am pushing for the deaf person to be included. The interpreter, yeah, but let's have the deaf person there. So they're looking up to, okay, that's a role model. This is the possibilities. This is what can happen. So the interpreter is just the bridge, really, for the language. But if you can have a deaf person in that role, that's the best experience. They're the person that will have their lived experience, their language, their culture, and everything else that goes along with it. So I actually encourage all hearing people who are watching now, if you're involved with programs or projects, you know, I'm happy to connect with any of you. So is anyone else on the panel. We're all excited and motivated for you to be invited into our world and for us to be invited into your world to have those further communications and discussions. And now I think it's seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that lovely wrap up. That's a wonderful summary to finish on and a very positive summary, Riona. Well, I would like to thank everybody for attending and watching us tonight, uh, our first time on Thursday Night Live for Deaf Women. I would also like to thank the individual panellists for sharing their time and their rich experiences. We're very, very thankful for what you've contributed to this discussion. I'd also like to say... We already have started this. We started this conversation by acknowledging deaf pioneers, and I'd like to acknowledge uh, young deaf people and your community and your journey. And we welcome you. And we hope that you feel proud or will feel proud of your identity. The community is here for you. Thank you, everybody, for watching.